So it's Acts chapter 2 and verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out, my, pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapour of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad, moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit in his throne, he seeing this before, spake, turn the page right, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And that's our reading. We won't go into the next section. So Peter is on the day of Pentecost, he is preaching, and the reason he's preaching is that the um, Pentecostal blessing has taken place. That is that the Spirit of God descended, if you remember, you remember the disciples in that upper room, and the presence of the Spirit of God was... um, evident by the sound, like the sound of a rushing mighty wind, and also the tongues as of fire that sat above each of the individual um, people present, each of the disciples. So you had that which was corporate and you had that which was individual. The corporate um, was the sound and the people were immersed in that that spoke about the presence of the Holy Spirit, hence the term, the baptism of the Spirit the immersion of the representative body of Christ, that is of the church, was baptised 
And baptism takes place, one body is baptised one time, tomorrow uh, that tank will be open, and water baptism will take place, but this is a different baptism, but the same principle. The church, as represented um, by these Christians, was immersed in the Holy Spirit, baptised in the Spirit, a one-off thing. And then gifts were given, and the gift was given not to the group as a corporate entity, but to individuals within the group, hence Above each individual, there was that which signified the gift of tongues, which was given, which is a gift of languages. It's a linguistic miracle. And the languages which were spoken are actually detailed, and also not just the language, but you have the dialects within languages as well, and they're expressed there at the beginning of chapter 2. The consequence of that was that it became a thing that people were attracted to in the city of Jerusalem. Remember, this is one of the three national feasts that I spoke about. The people would come up, every male had to come. And so people came from near and far up to Jerusalem at this time. The city was bursting with people and people from all over the country came and also beyond the country. It would be for those, for that reason, for example, the Ethiopian eunuch would have made his way um, as a proselyte all the way up to Jerusalem um, in his journey it was an attraction that people came to which is why there were thousands of people there and it also speaks really as to why the gospel had the effect it did and why God had them speak in tongues there were so many people represented there in Jerusalem at that time and the people were saying what does this mean verse 12 what meaneth this others mocking said these men are full of new wine so people were saying, what's this all about? Other people were saying, they're just drunk. This is, this is just some men who are drunk and there's nothing more to it. Peter stands up in a reading as it commenced in verse 14 with the 11. So they stand up and remember they were commissioned to be witnesses to Christ and to his resurrection. These are the, the apostolic witness that is to bear testimony to in a legal sense not just to have been people who saw it but people who could testify to it and they stand up and Peter steps forward with the 11 there and he lifts up his voice and he begins to answer the question that's been put what does this mean Peter's going to answer that and from verse 14 down to the comment the the end of where I started to read from the commencement verse 14 to the end the conclusion is the answer to that question. But before he answers the question, he rebuts the accusation of drunkenness that's also put forward in verse 15. So as he does, he uses this expression, men of Judea, which was a common form of address, Judea being the area of Israel where Jerusalem was found. He will soften his language as he goes on. He will speak about fellow Jews in verse 14, men of Israel in verse 22, brothers in verse 29. But he says this, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. Now that was, a, that was a statement of great confidence. Peter stands up, there are thousands of people in front of him. And he says, listen to me. I've got something to say to you. Which is interesting because less than two months prior to this, it was the same man, Peter, who had betrayed the Lord really denied the Lord and betrayed him and he had been unwilling to speak up in a very small company. Now he steps forth boldly, full of the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit of God to do something that naturally he was not inclined to do. 
So he steps up, it all so remarkable that he does so, and he begins to preach. Now what's also remarkable is just this. He says, dismissing this idea of drunkenness, first of all, so he says, this is what it is not, before he says what it is. He says, this is not them being drunk. He says, these are not drunken, as you suppose. He says, it's only the third hour of the day. He says, it's absurd. The third of the hour of the day would be between eight and nine in the morning. It might not be so absurd in areas of Scotland, but it is absurd to think that people could have got themselves drunk in this context at that time, far too early in the day for people to have been drinking, according to their culture. So he he just rules it out. He says, they're not drunk. Look at the time of day it is. And then he moves on to explain what this was to this Jewish audience. And he's very careful with his words. He says in verse 16, But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now he's going to quote from Joel chapter 2, excerpts from verse 28 down to verse 32. Now he does not say that this is the fulfilment of Joel's prophecy. He does not, in fact, use any of the linguistic devices to indicate the fulfilment of prophecy. So he doesn't say it explicitly, neither does he imply it using a form of words that sometimes would be used in this context. What he does is, he says, remember what Joel's prophecy says, and it will help you understand what has just taken place. So the fulfilment, as we'll see of Joel's prophecy, has yet to take place in its fullness, but it has a relevance in the understanding of what you've just seen. Now, this form of words is used elsewhere. So that, for example, (coughs) when the scripture is being quoted about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, It is said that they looked on him whom they pierced. But it doesn't say that the scripture might be fulfilled that they looked on him whom they pierced. It just says that the scripture saith. Because there's a future fulfillment from that. And Israel one day will look on the Lord Jesus and that scripture will be fulfilled. They shall look on him whom they pierced. So when you see Old Testament scripture being quoted in a New Testament context, the accuracy of how it is introduced is important to understand what this is saying. So here he says this, do you remember, you should know, what Joel the prophet spoke, remember. And they should have recognised that this was the beginning of a course of events that would find its ultimate fulfilment in a day yet to take place. Now, if you were to go back into the prophecy of Joel, Peter is talking to devout Jews who would have been very familiar with that prophecy. Joel, like nearly all the prophets in the Old Testament, is a book both of judgment and of hope, dividing into two main themes, like so many of the prophets did in the Old Testament. First of all, there would be warning about the coming judgment of God as a result of things that the prophet identified. We sometimes think about prophets as always speaking to future events, but most prophets spoke to current events 
and brought the condemnation of God upon the current behaviour of Israel and Judah. And yes, there would be a future fulfilment, but very often there was a direct condemnation and there was, a, there was an action that God was going to take in judgment. But then there was always a message of hope, by, well, yeah, by and large, always a message of hope given to those who would repent and turn to God. That's what the prophets did. Think about Jonah, you think about going into Nineveh and he's, he's preaching and he's preaching a, pro, a message of judgment but also a message of repentance. You think about the prophets when they moved, Isaiah was like that and Jeremiah was like that and they're calling the people to repent because judgment is coming. Well, the part of Joel that's quoted from and Joe, by the way, when you read it, begins with a whole litany of disasters that were about to take place and were taking place, actually. There had been a severe drought. There was a, there was a, 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 a complete disaster with locusts that had overtaken the country. The temple sacrifices had also stopped. And there was calamity after calamity that Joe speaks about. Joe's also, by the way, the first prophet to begin this idea of the day of the Lord. And that's going to be relevant as we come to what he's got to say. So he speaks about calamities and then hope. He speaks about the need for repentance as a result of God's, God's verdict upon their current behaviour. All of that is relevant. So he introduces this idea of the day of the Lord. And I just want to say a bit about that and then we'll come down to these verses. When the day of the Lord is introduced in the Bible, it's not a day of 24 hours. It's a day which is a period of time not restricted to 24 hours. And in this period of time described as the day of the Lord, it is the period of time in which three basic characteristics are emphasised. Number one, God's righteousness will be displayed on earth in his judgment against sin. Number two, the nation of Israel will be reaffirmed in their relationship with God during this period of time. And number three, it's always described as being near or at hand or coming or coming quickly. It seems to always be declared in such a way as to be imminent, the day of the Lord. And there's an anticipation of imminent, impending intervention by God for this reason, so that the people would be warned and repent and seek the Lord, so that they would be delivered from the judgment to come. There would be a restoration of Israel, both material and spiritual. And Peter is quoting from a prophet that spoke like that. And he speaks from the restoration section of Job in chapter 2. Following that section, there's a whole a bit of judgment that Job speaks about. So let's come to this section with that in mind. He says in verse 17, notice the expression, it shall come to pass. Notice it again in verse 21. It shall come to pass. And it divides up into two parts what he's going to speak of from the prophet Joel. So first of all, this section in verse 17 down to verse number 20. It shall come to pass in the last days. This is what Joel said. Now, the last days is an expression that you can look up a concordance and find repeated again through Scripture. Hebrews chapter 1 has it. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto their fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days 
spoken unto us by his son. John will say this to his audience, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last time. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, Let's know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. This is a period of time described as the last days. Again, just not days of 24 hours, the last days. It's a sort of prophetic expression to speak about a period of time. And it encompasses the period of time that we're living in and the period of time that will follow on earth after we are gone. Probably right through to the manifestation of the Lord Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom. The last days. And so Joel spoke about these days. That whole period of time. And he says it shall come to pass in the last days, in this period of time. God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Now that obviously hadn't happened in the day of Pentecost. In its fullness. But these Israelites should have known that one feature and characteristic of that period of time which would ultimately be fulfilled in the ultimate, as we'll speak of in a moment, is being at least partially seen to begin with here in the day of Pentecost. It has this character that God said, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. That's yet to happen in all its fullness in a coming day. Yet to take place in the future. And then he says this, Upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams. So he says this, The people of Israel, sons and daughters, when the Spirit of God is poured out upon all flesh, they will prophesy, they will see visions, and they will dream dreams. Three things. Each of these speak in a different way of God revealing something of himself, principally. This would even actually, verse 18, on my servants and on my handmaids, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This would even extend to slaves, which were a group that had few rights or privileges, certainly in those days. So this is going to happen in the last days. The Spirit of God is going to be poured out. The people of Israel will have revelation from God that they will express in this way. Visions and dreams and so on. Then in verse 19 and 20 he says, In addition to that, this is Joel speaking and Peter quoting it. He says in verse 19, I will show wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapour of smoke. So he says there are going to be cosmic signs all around you. Blood, fire, vapour of smoke. Phenomena of extraordinary character will take place. And you will know this is the last days. Now, all of these things, which by the way were present in the Exodus from Egypt, which is a foreshadowing of the future um, tribulation, the things that happened in Egypt... The plagues that came, if you read in the book of Revelation, you will see that these plagues also happen in a global scale to a worse degree in the seven-year period of tribulation. Because it's God's wrath being poured out upon earth, upon the nation of Egypt, and then also in a future day upon the whole world. 
These three things, by the way, when you look into the book of Revelation, which speaks about the last days, as they are coming to a finale, as these things are not just seen in embryonic form, but in the fullness of them. Revelation 6 speaks about blood, the blood of those slain as the seals are opened and war and death break forth. Revelation 8 verse 7 speaks about the sounding of the first trumpet which will release hail and fire mixed with blood resulting in a third of the earth being burned up. We did this in the Bible class before some of you are maybe even born I think now I think about it. But we did this when we went through this verse by verse and it is terrifying in some senses when you get into the detail of what is going to happen on earth after we've been raptured to glory and the tribulation period begins one of these judgments the trumpet judgments a whole third of the earth is going to be scorched the sounding of that first trumpet the second trumpet releases a mountain burning with fire that's thrown into the sea resulting in a third of the sea becoming contaminated with blood that's revelation 8 verse 8 the fifth trumpet results in a bottomless pit being opened which pours smoke out like a from a great furnace it darkens the whole atmosphere and from out of that smoke come creatures demonic creatures that will torment men for five months that's in revelation 9 verses 1 to 5 the sixth trumpet releases four angels that kill one third of all mankind with fire smoke and brimstone coming out of their mouths so it continues in revelation and so what you're seeing is that Joel spoke about that. He spoke about wonders in heaven, signs in the earth, blood, fire and vapour of smoke. The sun turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. Now that idea of before does not speak about sequence, it speaks about character. It's not that this will all happen, then the day of the Lord will come. These events are part of the day of the Lord, not just signs preceding it. Other scriptures speak about the sequencing of events, not these. And then you come to this expression in verse 21. This is still Job being quoted. This is Peter standing up, reminding his audience what they knew, reminding of what the prophet had spoken of. Last days are coming. This is going to be the character of them. This is what's going to happen as they come to a finale. Why? What will then happen? When all of that takes place, as it's detailed in the book of Revelation, verse 21, and it shall come to pass. So you've got the expression of God's judgment, and then you've got the expression of God's deliverance. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, in context, that is speaking about a future day. There will be, by the way, when the church is gone, when God moves in judgment on the earth during those days of tribulation, there will be a mighty movement of God in salvation. You read about it in the book of Revelation. Because this message will be being proclaimed. Whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not to be in the church, we'll be gone. But to be saved nonetheless from God's wrath, to be saved for judgment, not to be saved, sorry, for blessing, not the blessings that we experience, but blessing nonetheless. And so here you have 
a remnant that will be saved in that coming day. And Peter reminds his audience that that was the message of Job. He says, you remember it. He said, the prophet said these words. You've asked what has just happened here. There's been a phenomena that you've seen. You haven't seen all of that cosmic phenomena, but you've seen something that's remarkable. Something that should remind you about what the prophet Joel said as a whole package. You've seen a part of that. You've seen something that fits somewhere into that, albeit in a very small way. And it should have an effect upon you. Just as it was having an effect on a coming day upon some. And so what he quotes here at verse 21, after he's explained again what is happening, in verse 30, um, sorry, not verse 36, yeah, verse 38, Peter will say, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He issues the same sort of salvation appeal as Joel does in his prophecy. So, he's quoted from Joel, now he comes in verse 22 to explain how the prophecy of Joel is connected to what they've just said. So he says, ye men of Israel, hear these words. So you have the statement of the Old Testament scriptures that they ought to have known and did. Now you have the interpretation of them in light of the historical events that have just unfolded. He says, hear these words. First of all, he speaks about the life of Christ. Remember, the Lord Jesus was not long crucified. He says, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember that was in his death? Do you remember that was really what people said of him? The Nazarene. He was Jesus of Nazareth. He was identified by Peter, so there was no mistake who he was speaking about. He says, you bear witness to his life. That's his audience he's speaking to. He says he was a man approved by God. That is, attested by God. God affirmed what he said, God attested to who he was. And you were witness to the actions of God affirming the claims of Christ. God did this by three things. Miracles, wonders, signs. Which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also no. So he says, I'm calling upon you as witnesses to what you saw. You saw this. You saw the miracles, the wonders, the signs. You saw the fact that God attested, approved Jesus. In fact, actually, when you, look, look, when you read the Gospels, you discover that this was pretty fresh. In the week prior to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, he had been performing miracles in Jerusalem itself. Matthew 21 verse 14 said he was healing the blind and the lame. This wasn't three years ago. He's not talking about Cana of Galilee here. He's speaking about things they'd just really seen. They had seen him 
perform these miracles. The miracle was that which demonstrated supernatural power. The wonders caused the people to marvel and the signs pointed to the spiritual truth that was being revealed by these things. And it ought to have caused them to look at the Lord Jesus and see him for who he truly was. But of course they didn't. Isn't it interesting that when John the Baptist was wondering about the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus sent a message to him in Matthew chapter 11 and the Lord Jesus pointed John the Baptist to the very same thing, the miracles, the signs and wonders, and asked him to consider these in light of what they would actually say to you about the Lord Jesus. So that's verse number 22. Then notice in verse 23, he moves on to his death. Him, he says, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken him by wicked hands of crucified and slain. Now here is one of these simple verses that brings together the actions of God and the actions of men. And they're speaking about the same thing. Two different perspectives, two truths about one set of events, <clears throat> giving a divine explanation and a human explanation. He was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Counsel just means will or design. Determinate means appointed, it means decreed, that kind of idea. So it's the idea to mark out a, a boundary line. So you have this idea of foreknowledge, which is the word prognosis, which simply means to foreordain or to foreplan. It does not mean pre-knowledge. It does not mean that the Lord knew something that was going to happen before it happened, but having no influence upon it or no authority over it. It wasn't that he was a spectator to future events. It, foreknowledge has the idea of mapping it out. He is sovereign. It's his purposes that run the world, actually. And Peter present, presents this divine paradox. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, we know it was planned beforehand because the prophets speak of it in such detail. God revealed it hundreds, thousands of years before it even took place. And he didn't just reveal that it would took place, take place. He actually purposed that it would take place. Yet, Peter says, God was involved in this, but so too were you. He says, ye have taken him by wicked hands of crucified and slain. God is sovereign, but man is responsible for what he does. It's a paradox. I think it's unexplainable in the language and ability we have to comprehend these things. But God declares it to be true. You see it in the actions of Pharaoh. Remember that Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Yet they were still accountable for, his act, for their actions. You get this idea. Luke 22, verse 22. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You know, folk might look at Judas and say, well, you know, Judas had no choice in the matter. You know, Judas was spoken of even by David uh, when he spoke in the Psalms of his familiar friend that lift up his heel against him and so on. And you say, Judas had no choice in the matter. Satan even entered into him. 
Why is he culpable? Yet he is culpable. He is responsible. He made a choice. And I cannot give you a full explanation for those two things, but they're both true. They had wicked hands and they took him and they crucified and they slew him. In fact, they were described in the preaching in the early days as murderers. Then we have in verse 24 onwards the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Peter's preaching this stuff. He's quoted Joel the prophet, but now he's preaching Jesus. He says, you remember him. You remember his life. You remember the miracles. You remember the signs. You remember he was Jesus of Nazareth. You remember the fact that, although, albeit God's purpose was being fulfilled, you took him with wicked hands. You crucified him. He's preaching directly to his audience. But then he comes to the resurrection and he says this, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death. It's a beautiful verse, this, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Jesus had been crucified and died, but he had not stayed that way. This is a pivotal point in Peter's message, as it is in every gospel message. Jesus is alive. Don't miss that bit out. Jesus is alive. Now notice what it says. God raised them up, having loosed this expression, the pains of death. That is the word birth pains. One writer said, just as birth pangs are temporary but severe, so too was the agony of death for the Lord Jesus. Just as a woman's birth process gives rise to new life, the pangs of death Jesus endured resulted in the gift of eternal life, new life, as a result of his resurrection. That, by the way, um, that period of tribulation that's spoken of in the book of Revelation, um, the Lord Jesus spoke of it in Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25. When you look at Matthew 24 and 25, it's everything from a human perspective. It's the same events, but it's seen from an earthly perspective, it's described in that way. When you go to the book of Revelation, you remember the Lord's taken, John's taken up into heaven, and John is recording as from the divine perspective, looking down. That's why it's all things that are going on in heaven and so on, and how they affect the earth. The Lord's speaking about things that are going on in earth as they're affected by heaven. And he used that same expression, birth pangs, to speak about the tribulation period. The fact that it, it, in terms in, uh, of intensity and frequency, it, it continues and increases until the moment of deliverance when the Lord comes in the manifestation of his power uh, and he, he, he reigns in the joy of deliverance. So Peter preaches the resurrection here. Now, I'm not going to through this in detail. Suffice to say this. From verse 25 down to verse 36, Peter presents... Some say four, or is it five proofs of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah? Just notice them, if you would. From verse 25 down to verse 28, he quotes from Psalm 16, the great resurrection psalm. And he will demonstrate that David is not speaking about himself in Psalm 16. It's impossible. David is speaking about the Messiah. Then... He will give his own testimony from verse 29 down to verse 31. 
um, alludes to Psalm 132 in that section. Then in verse 32, he mentions eyewitnesses. You could lump Peter and the eyewitnesses together. If you want five, then you've got witnesses there in verse 32. And then in verse 33, he references what they had seen in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which ye now see and hear. And then from verse 34 down to verse 35, he speaks about the exaltation and ascension of the Lord Jesus, quoting Psalm 110, uh, again, another messianic psalm by David that refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. So five or four, if you like, but I think five uh, points in his preaching of the resurrection. Now, these had, a these had a particular relevance to his audience. You know, there's no point you standing up in front of an audience that, doesn't, that knows nothing about the Bible and saying, do you remember what Psalm 110 says or do you remember what Psalm 16 says? You know, these Jews have been quoting these Psalms from birth right through in their life. They'd heard them quoted, spoken of. It was part and parcel of their upbringing. They'd be familiar with them. What Peter is saying is the scriptures that you know are being fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. And the scriptures speak about the resurrection of the Messiah. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus has Old Testament legitimacy. The Old Testament that you think so much about. That's the sort of structure of what's taking place here in Acts chapter 2. He's really taking what they valued most and using it to destroy their objections <coughs> to the Lord Jesus. So he turns it on them. None of them would deny what the scriptures were. None of them would deny the kind of um, legitimacy and authority of the scriptures. So he uses that and demonstrates that the Lord Jesus had risen from the dead. There's just one or two things I want to pick out from this. Psalm 16 verse 8 to 11 is being referenced here as Peter preaches. And it's, it's good to go back and read these psalms and then read Peter's preaching about the Psalms. It's helpful to see how they're interpreted by the Holy Spirit, not just by us. So this is the voice of the Messiah, verse 25. For David speaks concerning Jesus. So there's no doubt about it. Peter says, look, this is all about the Lord Jesus. Don't need to make this up. He says this, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. This is the Lord Jesus. He's on my right hand that I should not be moved. He's basically saying in our terminology, I kept my eyes on God. The right hand was the side of protection. That, by the way, is why the bridegroom stands on the left hand of the bride, just in case you were wondering. Um, it's an old historical thing about being the side of protection and um, the protector of the bride, which is why the bodyguard stands at the right side, historically with the shield. Um, the Lord Jesus is saying this, I have absolutely nothing to fear. I'm going to the cross. I trust God. He's my protector. He's always there, and I trust him to be there. That's what that expresses. Then he goes on, and he says, Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad, moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. He said, I was able then to go to the cross in joyful service. 
Remember, the Hebrew writer says in verse 2 of chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He wasn't glad for the pain. He was glad for the consequences of the pain, which was the blessings of us. I love this expression. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. That's a beautiful expression. One translation put it this way, I think, or certainly one commentator expressed it in this way. My body, my flesh, my body shall pitch its tent on the ground called hope. That's the idea in these words. My body shall pitch its tent on the ground called hope. He says, I'm going to rest, take up residence on that ground. What? The ground of hope. And what was that based on? Verse 27. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now, you can look at commentators galore and you see different ways of interpreting this. Some people believe that the Lord, that means the Lord Jesus actually went into hell after he died and God didn't leave him there but took him back out again. Other commentators think the, the force of the expression is that you would not abandon my soul to hell. Neither suffer your Holy One to see corruption. I favour the latter. Um, remember, um, the Lord committed himself into the hands of his Father upon death. And that would be the way I would look at it. But what is certainly true is just this, that death was a temporary experience for the Lord Jesus. And he was confident in it. He wouldn't linger there any more than he had to. He wouldn't be abandoned to it. He certainly wouldn't suffer corruption. We know that. For three days his body lay in the tomb and yet there was no corruption in that body unlike every other body that's died. And David is not speaking about himself. Peter expresses this in verse 29. He says, let me freely speak unto you, the patriarch David. Look, look. he says, David wasn't talking about himself. David's dead and is still buried. He hasn't experienced resurrection. His sepulchre is with us unto this day. You could go at the time of the Lord Jesus and visit the tomb and see the bones of David. He's speaking about someone else. Who? He's seen this before. Speak of the resurrection of Christ. That his soul was not left in hell. His flesh did not see corruption. And Peter really comes to the climax of his preaching and says, This Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ. God raised him up and we are all witnesses to it. Then he speaks about the ascension. And he quotes Psalm 110. He says again, David wasn't speaking of himself. David's not ascended into the heavens, verse 34. But David said, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou in my right hand. It was pointed out to me just last week. I was at a conference. My brother spoke in two sessions in Psalm 110. And he said, this is the Bible's favourite psalm because it's the most quoted psalm in the whole Bible. And it speaks about the ascension and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ and more than that. But this is part of it being quoted here in the preaching. And look, he comes to the climax of it all. Therefore, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, you crucified him, both Lord and Christ. He basically says, your Messiah is Jesus. 
You crucified him. He rose from the dead. He's the Messiah. He is the Messiah of the Old Testament, of Psalm 110, of Psalm 16, of Psalm 132. He's the one that Joel was speaking about in his prophecy. And all that you see take place here ought to speak to you as an audience, is what he was saying. That you must realise that these last days have commenced. And what took place had the characteristic of what Job spoke of in his prophecy. Not the fulfilment, but the characteristic of it. It's beginning. And just as Job in his prophecy said that the coming last days ought to cause you to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, Peter is saying the same thing. It started. Jesus is the Messiah. That's who we preach. That's what's happening. And what we'll come on to the next time is this. If you look at verse 37, it says this. There was an effect, basically. Loads of folks get saved. Thousands. When they heard that. And God's voice was heard in the preaching that took place that day at Pentecost. God's voice was heard. And when it was a very skillful, no doubt powerfully presented message, the Old Testament scriptures were explained and preached. The life, death, resurrection, ascension, glorification of the Lord Jesus was presented as having Old Testament uh, legitimacy as well as their eyewitness testimony. But all of that could take place. But you see, the Spirit of God had been poured out. They were full of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God worked that day. And the effect of the preaching was not to educate. If you look at verse 37, you'll see the effect of the preaching. It was that their hearts were touched and their conscience was pricked. So this was not an education process, albeit they were being educated during it. It was more than that. It was that God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, would speak right into the hearts of the audience and that they would be convicted and cry out what should we do what should we do any person who preaches the gospel or any person who witnesses for the Lord Jesus I would suggest should come to a passage like this remembering the audience and the particular audience of that time and see that the presentation of the Lord Jesus has biblical legitimacy as you present it, that's great, and you present it and you preach Christ, but really the Spirit of God needs to work in order for there to be a response anywhere near what the response was on that day. That people's hearts were touched, their conscience was pricked, and they cried out for salvation. And the first local church was established as a result. And it was huge. I don't know how they baptised them all. That's a great debate. How did they remember the Lord? 3,000 souls. Well, it would take, take a long time for a, a cup to go around 3,000 souls. We just don't know a lot of the information that took place on these very early days, but we do know this, that it was as much a local assembly as what we would seek to practise in our day. And so we're going to learn a little bit about that um, in Acts chapter 2 and the community that was established there in Jerusalem 
that serve the Lord in those days. Let's just pray and give thanks for his word.